The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You still thinking about Dr. Smith? Try to forget him, Will. He's really not worth the effort. I know he was always doing things that were wrong, but underneath, I like him, that's all. A most flattering remark, William. Isn't anyone going to welcome the prodigal's return? What do you want? Now, is that a way to greet Santa Claus? Particularly when he has gifts for you all. You mean you're going to give us the machine, Doctor? It was always my intention. You misjudged me, Will. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, December 18th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now till noon. Uh, it's not right wing. What is it? Doing? It's just right. Uh. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our final show for this season and this year, 2014, eh, Robert? Yep. And I will be talking about the God of the Machine and how, how the economy works and what people are doing in our in our community this time of year, especially around the Christmas season, and you know to do things for poverty and and, and the poor. I think they're going drastically in the wrong direction, and that's something I want to talk about uh, when I talk about both theory versus practice in terms of what our guardians of the city are doing in terms of protecting the poor and trying to do things for them. Robert, I understand you have a rather heavy subject again today. Yeah, uh, no, no change, I guess, from <laughs> the usual <laughs> subjects that we cover on this show. Uh, it's, um, I entitle it Condolences, or Enoch Powell was right. Uh, it, started, it started off because I was listening to a BBC World News program the other day when they broadcast a special on what they called The Far Right in Europe. The question they asked was how to stop the spread of the far right. And there was no dancing around their political position, obviously. (laughs) You know, no objectivity there, no hidden biases for sure. Their feet were firmly planted on the far left, and the far right were viewed as, as bad, and they said this, as bad as Hitler's Nazis. The odd thing is that the people they described as being far right shared only really one political characteristic opposition to open immigration. Other than that, um, one attribute, many of the policies of the so-called far right were in lockstep with the policies of any party from the so-called left or far left and and so-called center. To be sure, there are people in these so-called far right parties who hold views which we here in Canada might call conservative, such as opposition to abortion or euthanasia. But to Europeans, these views are held to be so beyond the pale that anyone who holds such views are considered to be kin of Adolf Hitler. But of all the characteristics of these so-called right-wing parties, it is opposition to open immigration which appears to strike fear into the hearts of the socialists, including the socialist broadcasters at the BBC. Open immigration is immigration of anyone, regardless of race, color, religion, political ideology, criminal history, or mental or physical incapacities. To question open immigration often qualifies you as a racist. Debate is shut down. Uh, 
you're for not you're against open immigration racist end of end of story socialism involves a myriad system of social programs like universal single-payer health care old-age pensions family benefits welfare benefits free public housing and similar government schemes to redistribute wealth it's the nature of socialism we practice it here in this country unfortunately for the socialists such pyramid schemes rely on an ever-increasing population of young people to be able to pay for the benefits of the elderly. It's primarily, you see, the elderly who benefit from the retirement programs and the most expensive social program of all, health care. Without enough working young people paying taxes to fuel these benefits, the system collapses. So, what do you do if you're a socialist? Demographically, the native populations of countries like Sweden, Norway, the UK, Germany, France, and the remaining Western democracies, including Canada and the United States, have a rate of natural increase, that is the birth rate minus the death rate, which falls at or below that of replacement. In other words, we aren't having enough children who survive long enough to pay taxes. And if left unchecked, our populations would decrease, throwing the entire social safety net into insolvency. In other words, we would return to a system where people would have to pay for their own health care and save for their own retirements without burdening their children with a crippling tax load. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, sounds uh, pretty good to me, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but not to the socialist. Countries having the highest natural replacement rate and the fastest growing populations are the so-called developing countries, primarily African nations. I believe Niger is the highest one. After Africa, you have the Middle East, followed then by Asia. The socialist central planners who sit at the center of Western countries' immigration departments look at these figures and, with the mind of a pure statistician bent on maintaining a growing tax base to fuel their cradle-to-grave socialist programs, construct immigration policies which favor immigration from those countries which have more babies. With pencils sharpened, they figure that the massive incentives used to attract such immigrants, free housing, welfare payments, etc., are less in the long run than the taxes the, that these children of these immigrants would pay over their lifetime to pay for the social programs which are at the heart of our socialist states. What the clockwork minds of these socialist bureaucrats fail to see are the many cultural clashes such an influx of immigrants bring to a society where historically the culture is based on the rule of law, democracy, peace, order, and good government, individualism, and capitalism, such as in Canada. But do they really fail to see that the immigrant populations are culturally opposed to these defining characteristics of the Western democracy? Or is it by design that immigration is from countries whose cultures historically are tribalistic rather than individualistic, socialist rather than capitalist, and authoritarian rather than democratic? Are they consciously aware that immigration of large numbers of people from tribalistic countries will quickly outnumber the population of the native inhabitants, you and I? Do they not realize that the tendency for many of these immigrants is not to spread out and assimilate, which would be a good thing, but to congregate into clustering neighborhoods and fail deliberately to integrate into the historical culture of their new homeland.
I think they do. I think it's by design. I think it's planned that way to destroy the West, to destroy individualism and capitalism and freedom. The facts have been so plain for decades that they must know what they're doing is changing, not the color of a nation, but the culture of a nation. Nobody, myself included, cares that a nation changes from white to black or yellow. Irrelevant. But most people seem to care when the defining culture of their nation changes dramatically from one based on individual freedom to one of collectivist authoritarianism, the path we're following now. Since 1945, British nationality law allowed for the immigration of people primarily from the former colonies of Britain, including Jamaica, Pakistan, India, South Africa, Kenya, and Hong Kong. And since 1951, and the United Nations 1951 Refugee Convention, refugees have poured into Britain. And I'm going to be singling out Britain for the rest of the show, mostly because of their well-documented immigration policies and the result that can be documented over there. They've had a lot of history. They've had a lot of history of it. They were one of the really, I guess, first ones to um, feel, because they're in such a small, isolated island nation with a defined culture. Almost like a test tube sitting there. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. It's not like the United States, who was built on uh, immigration, Mm -hmm. while, of course, yeah, Britain was built on immigration, but over, over a thousand years. The United States was built on immigration over, what, 300 years or so. But since 1951, refugees have poured into Britain, changing forever the culture tenor of that nation. Most often for the good, I would submit, but sometimes for the bad. In 1969, Enoch Powell, a conservative member of parliament for Wolverhampton Southwest, gave an address to the general meeting of the West Midlands area conservative political body. His speech, erroneously referred to, by the way, as the Rivers of Blood speech, was perhaps the first time a man of his stature, he was a brigadier in the war, and a member of parliament, member of the cabinet. His stature and rank openly talked about the concerns native Britons were having over the growing influx and influence of immigrants in their local neighborhoods. As he predicted in his speech, he was to be cursed for bringing out into the open that which everyone was talking about behind closed doors or in the coffee shops. The process of immigration was happening at too fast a pace, so fast that the numbers of immigrants entering the country were not assimilating, but rather dominating, replacing the native culture with their own. Powell was labeled a racist for his comments. Today there are murmurings in Britain that Enoch Powell was right. Not all of Powell's speech was recorded, but what follows in this clip are excerpts from his speech And, by the way, the editing is not mine, but from the source I found on YouTube. You can find the complete text of the speech online, and I would encourage you to read the full text to put these comments into context. As much of Powell's speech had been taken out of context, and much of what he said in his speech was not, in fact, his own words, but a repeating of conversations he had had with his constituents. And uh, after that speech, coming out of it, we'll, uh, we'll hear from Nigel Farage, the leader of the UK Independence Party and a member of the European Parliament. Those whom the gods wish to destroy, they first make mad. We must be mad. Literally mad as a nation to be permitted the annual inflow of some 50,000 dependents 
who are for the most part the material of the future growth of the immigrant descended population. It is like watching a nation busily engaged in heaping up its own funeral pyre. It almost passes belief that at this moment, 20 to 30 additional immigrant children are arriving from overseas in Wolverhampton alone every week. And that means 15 or 20 additional families a decade or so hence. Here is their means of showing that the immigrant communities can organize to consolidate their members, to agitate and campaign against their fellow citizens, and to overawe and dominate the rest. The discrimination and the deprivation, the sense of alarm and of resentment lie not with the immigrant population, but with those among whom they have come and are still coming. This is why to enact legislation of the kind before Parliament at this moment is to risk throwing a match onto gunpowder. In these circumstances, nothing will suffice but that the total inflow for settlement should be reduced at once to negligible proportions and that the necessary legislative and administrative measures should be taken without delay. Powell ended his speech with a line from the Roman poet Virgil, which summed up his deep sense of anxiety. It is one of the most misquoted lines in British political history. As I look ahead, I am filled with foreboding. Like the Roman, I seem to see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. They tried to say that anybody that dared to talk about this subject was necessarily a bad person and racist. That was what they tried to do. And actually, this has been going on ever since Powell's speech. He was wrong in the sense that he felt that black and white would find it difficult to mix. But unfortunately, he's been proved to be right because the sheer numbers that have come into Britain have led to segregation, have led to ghettoization, and we now see uh, significant parts of our big cities where people don't even speak English. And that, of course, was Nigel Farage of UKIP. And in that clip, I think that he was probably incorrect to claim that Powell did not believe that it would be difficult, or did believe that it would be difficult for blacks and whites to get along. In an interview with Powell by David Frost, he clearly suggests that the native and immigrant populations could coexist peacefully if the numbers were only kept in check to allow for a gradual assimilation, not only to the immigrants, to the native population, but also assimilating native population to the new cultures that are being introduced. It's sort of a mix. If only the numbers were kept in check. And by the way, um, if you want to find an excellent interview with um, Enoch Powell, I suggest you go to YouTube, type in Enoch Powell and David Frost, and you'll find an hour-long program 
where David Frost, who of course is um, left-leaning, uh, context-dropping, liberal part of the media, even back in 1969. Really? Tried, I was a fan of his, too. Uh, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> I didn't know that. You were like that, Bob. Actually, you know, as an interviewer, perhaps he was doing his job to bait his guest. I don't know. However, if you look at that, what he did was try to paint Powell as a racist. But Powell stood his ground, and in a beautiful sense of intellect... He would define his terms and use his words like a scalpel to cut away the irrelevancies and context dropping of David Frost and came away with the audience applauding and uh, basically saying or agreeing with Powell that in no way was he being racist in these comments but simply reflecting the, uh, the mood of his constituents on the street uh, for what was typically a taboo subject, but now is, and it's, by the way, it's still a taboo subject. You look at Herr Wilders in Europe and um, the, the trials, uh, the literal trials and tribulations that he's been going through. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, bringing, bringing to the fore a very serious problem. You know, it's typical of the liberal, uh, the liberal left. Um, liberal? <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's Freudian, I don't know. <laughs> As is typical of the liberal left, Nigel Farage, whose views are sympathetic to Powell's in many respects, is being labeled a racist for wishing to control and stem immigration into the UK. He also fits into the BBC's definition of far right. However sensible his policies and however millions of people who are following the UKIP. The raising of the ghost of Enoch Powell has uh, come about as concerns rise in England, less so in the rest of the um, UK, it's primarily England, not necessarily Scotland and Wales to a lesser degree, that immigration is out of control. The focus of the worry rests not necessarily with immigrants from Jamaica and South Africa or Hong Kong or almost any other country per se, it rests with the ideology of Islam, as practiced by 2.6 million or 5% of the people in England alone. This relatively small number of people have taken to certain neighborhoods, primarily in London, and have declared those neighborhoods as Sharia zones, where, if one were to walk into them, one would think that they'd gone back in time 1,500 years and had moved to Pakistan. One would also be taking one's life in one's hands, as the police are reluctant to enter these no-go zones for the real fear of creating and creating and raising the ire of the Muslims who reside there. Now, the, the mosques in these neighborhoods openly preach sedition and treason to Britain, openly recruit for a jihad abroad, and thumb their nose at the laws of Britain. While in general, immigrants from almost any other nationality and religion blend into British society and eventually become a positive influence in that country as they do in any other country, there's the growing realization on the part of the public that a large percentage of Muslims in that country are there not to escape the barbarous nature of their original homelands, but to import it. They're not there to take advantage of the freedom the UK has to offer, but to destroy it. Hence the rise of the sentiment expressed 45 years ago by Enoch Powell, back to the blinkered ignorance of the social socialist central planners who, in their attempt to import taxpayers from abroad, have imported a virus which feeds on and relies on the largesse of their new nation. 
Any mention by people like Nigel Farage or Paul Wills Weston, who we had on, we've had on this show, or any admirer of Enoch Powell, invites the label racist, and as Paul Weston of Liberty GB can attest, risks imprisonment for their views because he was, if you recall, arrested mm-hmm. for actually quoting Winston Churchill in That's public. Right. For their open immigration policy, the UK has been thanked by blood and violence at the hands of Islamists. On July 7, 2005, four Islamist suicide bombers killed 56 people and injured 700 in London. On June 30, 2007, there was the Glasgow International Airport attack perpetrated by Islamists. On May 22, 2008, there was an attempted bombing in Exeter by an Islamist. On May 22, 2013, a British serviceman was killed and beheaded in the street by two Islamists in Woolwich. And there have been several failed bombing attempts in the past decade by Islamists in Britain. Here at home, we've had the most recent murders of Canadian servicemen by Islamists. This week, we say, um, we saw, rather, the Sydney, Australia murders of two by an Islamist, who thankfully was killed as well who claimed his actions were an attack on Australia by ISIS. In other words, he was acting as a religious zealot for the Islamic State against Australia. I watched ABC TV coverage of that event as it was happening, and again, not wishing to recognize the failure of the socialists in control of immigration, the commentator had the nerve to suggest that the offender was perhaps a customer with a grievance or perhaps had a financial concern. This comment, by the way, after the black flag bearing the Muslim Shahada in Arabic was seen being held up to the window of the Lind Cafe by two terrified hostages. I couldn't believe it. It was just out of this world to consider the blatant ignorance, the blatant denial of this commentator, knowing full well what everybody else knew, that this was an Islamist terrorist, um, to suggest, to dare to suggest that it was probably a customer with a grievance, mm-hmm. or perhaps he had financial problems. There's no doubt that he had mental problems, and his mental problem was, of course, following Islam in, in a literal sense. You know, the level of ignorance by the left-wing media is unfathomable. Their level of betrayal to continue to allow immigration into the West by people whose political ideologies are diametrically opposed to freedom is treasonable and suicide. Cultural suicide, national suicide. Bob, you mentioned to me at the, uh, at the root of the left's denial is a tenet of their philosophy not to judge. It was the slogan of the 60s, the 60s hippie culture that went, who am I to judge? The slogan, by the way, borrowed from the teachings of Jesus. And you had a, an interesting uh, listen to uh, Tom McConnell show the other day. What did you learn from that? Well... He had, just yesterday I think it was, and he had some very interesting callers, particularly one fellow, I wish I remembered his name, but he he was born in Egypt and emigrated to Canada some 30, 40 years ago. And his opinion was that if you allow immigration from these countries en masse, he says you're going to have to just accept living with the threat of terrorism all the time and intolerance for certain other religions like his own. He was a Coptic Christian, so he knew whereof he spoke. He says, you either have to cut off that uh, that flow of immigration or live with the consequences. There's no two, There's no third way, he, uh, as he saw it, anyway. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd have to agree with him. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be the only person to agree with him. On this show, we've had Salim Mansur agree that there should be no immigration from Muslim countries. 
Uh, we've heard the same from Tariq Fata. We've heard the same from Rahil Raza. We've heard the same from Zudi Jasser, uh, prominent Muslims in Canada and the United States who um, are on side, knowing full well that if you let these people in, there is a very large percentage, large percentage, who are Islamists or um, agree with terrorist actions and jihad. So um, I think it's obvious that uh, the socialist control over immigration has to uh, draw a line as to what kind of culture and ideology that uh, they're letting in. It's not just a free-for-all. There are um, limits. There should be. It's this uh, philosophy, by the way, of uh, who am I to judge, of no absolutes that's destroying the West. The foot soldiers of this, of course, um, are the left, the socialists, who must prop up their Ponzi scheme, socialist programs at the cost of the soul of this West. Well, these non-absolutists are meeting their match as they're being confronted by a tribe of people with clear absolutes. Islamists are part of a death cult which has no qualms about passing judgment on anyone not of their faith and makes no apologies for their goal to take over the world and to kill all who oppose them. Enoch Powell was right. If the Western world continues not to identify that there are indeed absolutes in this world, that there is a moral way to behave, that you should and must judge others against the standard of individual rights and reality using reason, not faith, then it will be run over and replaced by a death cult. To drive the point home, how despicable the nature is of our enemy and why we must pass judgment on them. On Tuesday, Muslim terrorists killed, brutally killed, 148, mostly children, in a school in Pakistan. While leaders of the Western world issue statements of condolences to the families of the victims, as is our usual nature, it was revealed by Tariq Fatah yesterday, just yesterday, that at the funeral for the children, a banner was seen on the wall which read, quote, the blood of innocent children will, Allah willing, turn India, America, and Israel into dust. Well, my condolences to the West. Interesting, Robert. You know, you talked about the unfathomable level of ignorance you're dealing with on the left. I think that's a bit of what I'm going to be talking about coming up on a more domestic level. And and <laughs> it's hard to say whether it's ignorance or just evil intent that's being totally denied of some sort. Uh, you, you really do have to question it when you look at evidence versus the theory and the facts, which I'll be doing shortly. But, you know, if wishes were a gift horse in the mouth, we wouldn't need fairy tales and parables to keep reminding us otherwise. Coming up next from the 1960s TV series Lost in Space, we're going to visit the idea of getting something for nothing and its broader implications to each and every one of us. Our imaginary adventure begins with the, uh, or as the nefarious Dr. Smith and Will Robinson discover a magical wishing machine, and our conversation will spill over into our very real world when we return on the other side. I wonder what that is. It doesn't look broken at all. Who knows or cares? Throw it away. Hey, Dr. Smith, how do I look? Like the school dunce at Halloween. Gotta stop wasting time. 
no will. I could eat a few more of those rolls you brought me for breakfast. I wouldn't mind having something to eat myself. some sort of alien food. Where did it come from? Oh, no. That couldn't be. Dr. Smith, the machine couldn't have had anything to do with getting that food, could it? We're on a planet where anything is possible. William, what a delightful surprise. Where have you been keeping yourself? I've been sort of busy, sir. Well, you're here now, and that's all that matters. Come closer, come closer. Golly. A few simple conveniences, quite necessary for survival in the wilderness. I had to tell my father about the machine, Dr. Smith. Oh. No harm done. I would have informed him myself, eventually. Now, uh... What about a piece of delicious French pastry? Can't make up your mind? I was just thinking about Penny and Judy and everyone else. So? It wouldn't be fair for me to have cake when they couldn't. A noble gesture, but hardly realistic. Here, my boy. Dessert for tonight's dinner. Compliments of Zachary Smith. Thank you, sir. You know, Will, I've missed you. It's been very lonely here without you. You could have come to see me. I've been banished, remember? Is that the only reason you stayed away? I don't quite follow you, my boy. You said all you wanted to do was check out the machine. That's exactly what I've been doing. For four days? Well, you see, uh, science is a matter of uh, trial and error. I had to be sure there was no danger. Have you found any? There are certain problems. But as soon as they're ironed out... When will that be? Uh, eventually, my boy, eventually. What you really mean is never, don't you, sir? Now, Will, what a thing to say. Our impulses are picked up by the headset and transformed into high sonaric electrical waves. Then what's the procedure? Sonaric waves are then fused with a radioactive center in the machine. What causes the thought process to materialize into reality? Cannot compute. Programming data insufficient. How our little miracle worker functions is of no importance. It works, and that's all that interests me. I know how the machine works. You do, huh? Yes, it's exactly like an Aladdin's lamp. I mean, instead of rubbing it, you just think of what you want. We're trying to find a scientific explanation, and you give us fairy tales. It's a thought translator, that's what it is. The trouble with you, William Robinson, is you have no imagination. I don't care what you say, it's still a wishing machine. Theory and conjecture. Nonsense and jabberwocky. We have the gift horse. Let us not examine its mouth too closely. Well, did you find out anything? Only how abysmally ignorant we are. Well, uh, if you've finished with the machine, I'd like to borrow it. I want to wish up something uh, extra special for supper. An excellent idea, Mrs. Robinson. 
The machine hasn't been used today, so there's really no problem. What do you mean, no problem? Well, for some reason, the Aladdin's lamp, as Penny called it, functions only twice a day. Oh, really? I, I thought it could be used over and over. Aren't two miracles a day sufficient? Go ahead, my dear. Order your dinner. Unless, of course, Professor Robinson would like to have the first wish. No, no, you go on ahead. Uh, I'm afraid I'm a practical man, and somehow I don't believe that you can get something for nothing. I have a lot to say about that Lost in Space selection we just heard uh, from episode 111, by the way, Wish Upon a Star. Because there's more substance and wisdom in what we've just heard, ostensibly from a fairy tale parable, than you'll ever hear from just about any person in governance or academia on the subject of basic survival in a social environment, because that's really what we're talking about here. You know, it's the Christmas season and the calls for the public's financial help to feed the poor, house the poor, and promote the poor reach a crescendo at this time every year. But one message continues unabated. Those classified as poor in this country are growing at a rate that simply does not make sense when contrasted against the wages we pay to public servants, to politicians, or when we hear of how great a profit some companies are making while high unemployment rates remain stagnant or low, or grow rather, and while other companies and businesses cannot seem to find the skilled labor they need to grow and prosper. So you can imagine my surprise when I saw this article in the Free Press on December 13th, written by Randy Richmond, with the heading, Ganging Up on Poverty. The headline suggests that poverty can somehow be defeated by some kind of gang effort, though in practice, as always, what's being ganged up on is wealth, not poverty. You know, maybe I'm using too broad a stroke here, Robert, but it seems to me all poverty activists are really wealth destroyers. (laughs) That's what they're engaged in doing. I want to read this from this article by Randy Richmond. London's academics and anti-poverty advocates have formed a -a one-of-a-kind partnership to produce some hard data that could ease some hard times. The results should help not only the most destitute in the city, but a range of people struggling, from workers with low wages and poor benefits to students with high tuition debt and no jobs. Notice how the, 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 the whole classification of who they're helping just gets broader and broader all the time. This is a partnership that we assert will benefit all Londoners and all of Ontario, David Sylvester, principal of King's College at Western University, said at an announcement Friday about a partnership between the college and the nine-month-old London Poverty Research Centre. The new creation, now called the London Poverty Research Centre at King's, (laughs) will provide the cloud of academic research and the support of a post-secondary institution to efforts to reduce poverty. Over the next two years, the centre will focus on answering who will be next to fall into poverty in London and what can be done to reverse the trend? Why has London failed to provide safe and affordable housing to single adults with mental health and addiction struggles? And what can be done? How best can London get poverty reduction dollars in the province? Listen that poverty reduction dollars. Hmm. Isn't every dollar a poverty reduction dollar? (laughs) (laughs) Are there dollars that are poverty creating dollars? Yes, the ones they're spending. Hello. Anyways, the academic research will share with agencies so they can attract dollars from funders keen to put money into projects that will work. Uh, Barbara Decker-Pierce, co-chair of the new center, said, 
Deputy Premier in London North Centre MPP Deb Matthews, also President of the Treasury Board, Minister responsible for the Poverty Reduction Strategy, (laughs) indicated the importance of having research to back projects. What's very exciting about this partnership, she says, is that we're going to start actually looking at the evidence and make sure that we're getting the best possible outcome for the money that we spend, she said in an interview said Sister Sue Wilson, treasurer of the board of directors of the new centre. The London Poverty Research Centre at King's is about moving from our collective intuition that there is something wrong in the city to evidence-based action for change. We know that charitable efforts too easily deteriorate into stagnation if we're not careful. Enough with the stopgap measures. And here are some of the projects they want to do, Robert. Get this. Conducting surveys of food bank users. Creating inventory of housing services for people with mental illness and addiction. Literature reviews of food and mental housing research. Research on reliance of social assistance through family generations. Collect 10 years of social assistance data to analyze trends. And helping create a poverty simulation event to help people understand the experience. You know, I wonder whether or not the people doing all of this research and uh, study are the poor. What would they wouldn't it be great if they actually hired some of these people to do these jobs, paid them actually minimum so that to spread it out. Well, but I, I suspect well, what are you going to do with this information? It's, it, it's, oh, it's, it's totally useless. It's, useful, it's a make-work project, uh, but I bet you it's a make-work project for people already making 60 grand a year. Well, that's it. You know, That's why I think it's monstrous. I think it's an obscenity. It's a bad joke. You know, Ayn Rand always said that the worst ideas come from the university and colleges, and this is a perfect example. The last time I touched on this subject, the major point I emphasized was that studying poverty is a dead-end game if and only if one's actual objective is to minimize instances of poverty. The cure for poverty is its opposite, wealth. To end the disease of poverty, one must study the nature of its cure, wealth. We have to understand where wealth comes from, God or the machine, we come back to that. Poverty itself is more than an absence than a presence, an absence of the process necessary to allow wealth to be created and stored by those who create that wealth. Talking about poverty and isolation is like talking about the number zero or about non-existence itself. It's a whole negative. Po- poverty is relative. Yes. It relates that's to a, something. We've, we've covered that to death, all yeah, that yeah. stuff, you know. I'm, tr- I'm going in a slightly different direction with this today. You know, wealth is a presence. And its source, despite all of our accumulated knowledge on the subject, still remains a mystery for most, not out of ignorance, but out of conscious avoidance of the known solution. Getting back to what you were saying in in your your section, Robert. This is one of the things that we need to study, the psychology of self-destruction, which generally begins with misplaced applications of self-interest. The poor will always be with us, goes that very old and very tired saying, one which leaves us kind of hanging in despair, you know, believing that no real solution is ever even possible. Well, the poor will always be with us. We can't do anything about it. But here's a better saying, and one that'll be a little more inspiring and far more significant if you want to focus on a real plan of action. It's not that the poor will always be with us, but that the wealthy are not always with us. And why is this? A simple comparison of countries where there are a lot of wealthy people to those where there are few will easily demonstrate that the general welfare is much higher in the former than in the latter. And why is this? 
Once again, I'm reminded of Isabel Patterson's quote from The God of the Machine. Most of the harm in the world is done by good people and not by accident, lapse, or omission. It is the result of their deliberate actions, long persevered in, which they hold to be motivated by high ideals towards virtuous ends. This is demonstrably true, nor could it occur otherwise. So she's being very kind to these people. I think she's being too kind, because there's certainly a number of people out there who do it deliberately for destruction. Well, listen to the next statement. The percentage of positively malignant, vicious, or depraved persons is necessarily small, for no species could survive if its members were habitually and consciously bent upon injuring one another. Now, that's the Mideast, you know. A perfect example of where the numbers are much higher. It's not a small percentage. Well, it's not just the Mideast. It's all over the world. Everywhere where where you have that mentality. Mm -hmm. She says, destruction is so easy that even a minority of persistently evil intent could shortly exterminate the unsuspecting majority of well-disposed persons. And that's been true forever, not just in our time, but in her time. It doesn't take a whole lot of people. It doesn't take a lot of people to mess it up for everybody. As we just learned from Sony canceling a movie because of (laughs) one stupid email from North Korea. This is Uh, why uh, terrorists are winning. This is why terrorists are, that's why we're, we're creating terrorists by these reactions. Yes, because they're getting positive feedback. That's right. Now, I only wish that I could believe her when she suggests that the people causing most of the harm are good people. It's extraordinarily difficult for me to accept that those who came up with the London Poverty Research Center are in any way motivated by fighting poverty. Everything about their research depends upon a continuation of poverty. What I see is not people trying to cure poverty, but people, politicians and academics, looking for something for nothing to pad their own power bases. Again, as Isabel Patterson so accurately described, the lust for power is most easily disguised under humanitarian or philanthropic motives. It appeals naturally to people who feel a sentimental uneasiness for the misfortunes of others, mixed with the craving unearned praise, and most especially if they are non-productive. She says this, self, this naive self-glorification turns to positive hatred of any suggestion of persons helping themselves by their own individual efforts, by the non-political means which imply no power over others. The hatred has a deep motive back of it, for it is true that nothing but the political means will yield unearned public adulation. So that's how she saw it. Now, when it comes to matters financial... What politicians do, and the only thing they're able to do in the sense of taking any real action, is to rob Peter to pay Paul. And when they start doing that, the voter and the electorate themselves start becoming Peter's and Paul's and start taking part in the game. Any government that robs Peter to pay Paul can count on the support of Paul, goes the old saying. In this context, Peter is the producer. Paul is the plunderer. It cannot be otherwise. The plunderer produces nothing and has nothing to plunder. The producer is the only source of wealth and there is no other. Robbing Peter to pay Paul is the very process that causes mass poverty. And where it doesn't cause outright poverty as such, it always reduces prosperity and wealth at the best of times. It's also immoral, based on every rational code of human conduct and behavior. Thou shalt not steal was actually written in stone into the Ten Commandments, right? We still haven't figured that one out, let alone the other nine. As always, it's not about economics. It's about morality. And morality has a way of kicking us in the butt when we stray off the moral course. It's not a punishment. It's a consequence of doing the wrong thing. I'm not 
trying to be outrageous or insensitive when I keep saying this, but we as a society can buy all the poverty we want. And that's no joke because that's exactly the direction in which we've been heading steadfastly. We don't need a London Poverty Research Center. We need a London Wealth Research Center. But no government would ever finance that. You know, in her essay, Apollo 11, back in September 69, Ayn Rand wrote, Poverty is not a mortgage on the labor of others. Misfortune is not a mortgage on achievement. Failure is not a mortgage on success. Suffering is not a claim check. And its relief is not the goal of existence. Man is not a sacrificial animal on anyone's altar, nor for anyone's cause. Life is not one huge hospital. And added in her essay, Requiem for Man, Ayn Rand wrote, if concern for human poverty and suffering were one's primary motive, one would seek to discover their cause. One would not fail to ask, why did some nations develop while others did not? Why have some nations achieved material abundance while others have remained stagnant in subhuman misery? History, and specifically the unprecedented prosperity explosion of the 19th century, would give an immediate answer. Capitalism is the only system that enables men to produce abundance, and the key to capitalism is individual freedom. So back to our Lost and Spit the Space episode. You know, what's the god of their magic machine? There were some profound questions posed in our selected uh, sound bites today. One of the questions, what causes the thought process to materialize into reality, asks Ma Major Don. The robot cannot compute due to insufficient programming data. Well, of course. That's because no robot could ever understand the concept of effort or work or creativity or imagination or production. What causes the thought process to material to materialize into reality? The correct action taken on the part of the creator, the thinker and the willingness and ability to take the risk involved in trying some new course of action. And before the correct action can take place, one must first be able to act within a social setting that allows freedom, because without that, the correct action cannot even be discovered. How our little miracle worker functions is of no importance, says the evil Dr. Smith. It works, and that's all that interests me. We have, a gift, we have the gift horse. Let's not examine its mouth too closely. Sounds like one of our politicians who says, we want to do what works, right? Why do you suppose Dr. Smith, of all people, would not want to examine something that works more closely? Of all the things you might want to examine, that would be it, wouldn't it? But no, not Dr. Smith, because he's possibly the laziest and most dishonest character or caricature ever created for television. He doesn't want to know because then he would eventually run up to the conclusion that somewhere at the bottom of the something-for-nothing process is a slave. And more importantly, what that would morally make him. Which is exactly what happened in that episode, as we'll hear again momentarily. How ironic, or perhaps insightful, that even the wishing machine had a limit on its use. The Aladdin's lamp only functions twice a day, explained Smith. Aren't two miracles a day sufficient? Well, no number of miracles is sufficient in a something-for-nothing environment. I'm afraid I'm a practical man and somehow don't believe you can get something-for-nothing, concludes the wise Dr. John Robinson. How sad that we can find more wisdom in the imaginary tale of a family lost in space, a moral parable expressing a universal truth that has been known for as long as knowledge itself has existed, than we'll ever find among our current crop of politicians and social activists. They do not learn from theory, from logic, from practical common sense, nor do they learn from experience, as we'll see you when we return after this. It was Jerry's turn yesterday. It's mine today. All you want is some goofy tape recorder, and all you want is some equipment. Science is more important than music. It can work for art, so 
Now, wait a minute. Now we, now, we both can't use the machine, so why don't we let Dad decide? All right, by me. Well, you go ask him. I'll be right back. And don't you go anywhere. Oh, don't worry, I won't. I'd like some new tape recordings. She tricked me. Just as soon as I left, she used the thought machine. And you think that Penny should be punished for this outrage? I sure do. Maybe she should lose her turn a couple of times. That would teach her a good lesson. Oh, that sounds like a good idea, Will, but uh, there's just one thing wrong with it. It'd more than likely be a fight among the family for who gets Penny's turns. She was listening to her tapes. Oh, you should hear them, Dad. They're absolutely wonderful. Come here, Penny. I'm very disappointed in you. You've sacrificed your moral principles for something material. You lost far more than you gained. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir, and I'm very sorry. Well, then I don't have to tell you I don't ever want you to do that again. Here come Judy and Don. Hi. What's going on? We're having a family conference. Join us. Yeah, well. I, I suppose you've uh, put the new repressor on the chariot. Well, I... It was my fault. I asked Don to take me for a walk. Well, you were supposed to be working in the hydroponic garden. And Will, weren't you supposed to be helping Don? Well, does anyone care to make a comment? Then I will. And it can be summed up in three words. The thought machine. Well, I guess maybe we've all been relying on it too much, John, but... But why work when the machine can do it for you? Well, up to now, this family's been getting along very well. We have respect and love for one another. And you cannot wish for those things with that. Now we get this machine that makes dreams come true. And instead of making us happier, it sows the seeds of discontent, mistrust, and indolence. I said a machine that makes dreams come true. Nightmares can also be dreams. I don't understand it. An hour ago, this fruit was perfectly fresh. Is the permafood unit still working? Yes, it's working well, but even if it had stopped working, the fruit wouldn't go bad that quickly. Well, there must be some logical explanation. Mother, look at me. This is the dress I got from Dr. Smith's machine. Oh, Judy. Another thing from the thought machine gone bad. And Penny's new tapes, they won't play either. I'll bet everything we've got from that thought machine is no longer usable. Dad, I don't understand. Why did the alien give us things and then decide to take them back? Because Dr. Smith asked for too much. You know, he could have had anything he wanted. But like most people, it wasn't enough. He wanted more. When he tried to create a slave, the alien realized this. 
that vindictive creature. Leonard around? He went to the movies without me. It was the only option. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't understand which social situation this is. Could you give me some guidance as to how to proceed? The building manager is showing an apartment downstairs, and I haven't paid my rent. Oh, I see. Penny, I'm not sure I'm comfortable harboring a fugitive from the 2311 North Los Robles Corporation. <laughs> No big deal. I'm just a little behind on my bills because I cut back my hours at the restaurant and my car broke down. If you recall, I pointed out the check engine light to you several months ago. No, the check engine light is fine. It's still blinking away. It's a stupid engine that stopped working. It cost me like $1,200 to fix it. You know, it occurs to me, you could solve all your problems by obtaining more money. It occurs to me, too. Hang on a moment. Oh! Here, take some. Pay me back when you can. Wow, you got a lot of money in there. That's why it's guarded by snakes. Take some. Don't be silly. I'm never silly. Here. No, I can't. Don't you need money? Well, yeah, but... This is money I'm not using. Yeah, but what if you need it? My expenses account for 46.9% of my after-tax income. The rest is divvied up between a small savings account, this deceptive container of peanut brittle, and the hollowed-out buttocks of a superhero action figure who shall remain nameless for his own protection. <laughs> or her own protection. <laughs> Take some. Really? I mean, are you sure? I see no large upcoming expenditures, unless they develop an affordable technology to fuse my skeleton with adamantium like Wolverine. Are they working on that? I sincerely hope so. Okay, well, thank you. No, I can't. Look, Sheldon, honey, I don't want things to be weird between us. Won't it also be weird if I have to say hello to you every morning on my way to work and you're living in a refrigerator box and washing your hair with rainwater? I'll pay you back as soon as I can. Of course you will. It's impossible to pay me back sooner than you can. Assuming you subscribe to a linear understanding of time and causality. I'm regretting this already. I, I have to say that the Big Bang Theory's character Sheldon often offers us some of the most touching and sincere performances of someone who truly cares, and it can be really moving. In the example we just heard, Sheldon expressed a sincere yet very selfish concern for the plight of his neighbor across the hall, Penny. And more interestingly, Penny was forced to acknowledge that concern in a way that would not let her off the hook because she was being offered the proverbial hand up, not a hand out, <laughs> right? 
On the Lost in Space front, the other Penny and her brother Will each wanted to use the magical thought machine and ended up fighting over it, the rationing principle and practice. While everyone else on board the Jupiter uh, spaceship stopped performing their duties and responsibilities because they came to believe that the something-for-nothing machine could continue to operate forever. When the alien who built the thought machine realized Dr. Smith was using it to create a slave, he got to the root of the something-for-nothing secret. The something had to be created by someone, <laughs> right? Now, here in the city of London, I've been hearing a number of our own social activists proudly proclaiming that more social housing is the secret to wiping out poverty and ending homelessness. Social housing as a ticket to get people off the streets and save money. But you know, some cities have been there, done that, and the dream has indeed turned into a nightmare as Lost in Space, as Robinson would probably uh, say. I saw this article in National Post November 15th, spending on Vancouver's downtown east, east side, a fertile election issue. They're spending a million bucks a day. And Mayor Greg Robertson there said the same thing. We're going to end homelessness by 2015, etc., etc. Well, you know what? The whole neighborhood has turned into a hard drugs uh, total disaster zone. They're spending a, uh, a million dollars a day. They have over 250 service agencies and housi housing operations working in there. So basically they said hard drugs replaced booze, patients from deinstitutionalized mental hospitals flooded in, and police presence was pulled back and the area became dominated by social services. That's the future of a disaster zone. It was just, it's just amazing. You have to see that article yourself to see it, to, to believe it. And this is what London is heading for if we let our current crop of politicians carry on with their plan. You know, one thing about money, if you want money to have value, you have to have free will. If a third party, usually a political party or, or, a, or a politician, is forcing you to spend your money on things you wouldn't spend on yourself, then that money you earn ceases to have value for you because you've been denied the benefit of your efforts. Wealth is the result of a continuing active process. When that process stops or is inhibited, wealth decreases proportionately. Most wealth has a short lifespan, whether it's the food we eat, which must be replaced, or whether it's our technology, which must be replaced when consumed or even improved upon. Wealth is never a static thing. Even gold has no value if there are no products or services available to buy with it. And so that's my message on the whole money issue. And so given our theme today, and given the holiday break about to come up, I find that saying season's greetings and goodwill towards men sounds a bit too temporary <laughs> regarding the season, and too ambiguous regarding the goodwill aspect, especially in light of Isabel Patterson's observation. So for our year-ender, I'll leave you with this. On behalf of Robert and myself, freedom's greetings and free will towards men <laughs> for the next year and well into the future. We'll be back on Thursday, January 8th, 2015. Join us again next year when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Turn color it into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Oh, good. Dinner's here. Yes, dinner's here, and I'm having some. I'm having takeout food. Okay. You're damn right it's okay. I've been having leftovers at the restaurant for like four days, and I wanted something different, so sue me. You forgive me, Penny, but that would be the very definition of a frivolous lawsuit. <laughs> Sheldon, look, I will pay you back as soon as I can. You just have to give me more time. Oh, what? You lent her money? She needed money. 
You seem under pressure. Did I not lend you a sufficient amount? Because I can give you more. Oh, you know, you would just love that, wouldn't you? Yeah. You would just love to open up your little snake can and throw some money at the girl who can't pay her bills. Where are you going? Going home where I won't be interrogated like a criminal. Forgot my fortune cookie. In case either of you have larceny in your heart, you should know that I've moved my money out of the snake cam.